Welcome to the Encephalitis podcast. Today's guest is Catherine Jessup, who is author of the excellent book, and here it is, which is called Pulling Through, and it's help for families navigating life-changing illness, something that I think many of the people listening to this podcast will know all about. This is Catherine's first book, um, and it's also two things, really. It's a memoir of her experiences caring for her husband, Alan, who became Ill, Ill with encephalitis five years ago. But also, secondly, it's a guide, really, for anyone who may suddenly find themselves navigating the often confusing and an often very scary world of hospitals, doctors, medical jargon, recovery and rehabilitation, and much more, in fact. Pulling through really struck a chord with me as it explores a lot of what interests me as, a, as an academic and as an individual and as a researcher. And that's really about patients and carers' experiences of encephalitis and how listening to their stories can only help professionals to be better caregivers. So, Catherine, welcome to the Encephalitis podcast. Thank you so much for joining me. Well, thank you very much for having me. It's nice to be here. Thank you, Ava. I'm thrilled. Well, look, we'll, we'll cut right into it. You know, um, uh, pulling through begins on Boxing Day 2016. Tell us what happened and how Alan's and your family's life changed from that point. Well, it was it was very dramatic. And I know um, often the onset of encephalitis is not nearly as dramatic as it is was for our family. But for us, we were it was Boxing Day. Um, we were having just a normal family gathering, everything. We were a very, I would say, ordinary family. Um, I've got three children. We've got three children. Um, the oldest two girls were at university. My son, Sam, was 13 at the time. So we were all together down at my parents, um, enjoying just a completely normal family Christmas, all chatting and laughing. Um, and just as he was telling a joke, my husband, Alan, which was extremely typical of him, you know, very convivial, laughing, all jolly. He froze. And for a split second, I thought he was sort of having a bit of a joke, a bit, a bit of a laugh. But within that absolute microsecond, he, his face completely froze and he fell completely over. He just totally collapsed um, and was completely unconscious. And if I hadn't been standing there, he would have absolutely crashed to the floor, but he sort of fell onto me. Um, and it was just the most shocking thing you can imagine, really. It was it was exactly as as if I was talking to you now and that happened. Uh, absolute chaos. I'd done a first aid course. Um, I worked in a school, so I something in me. I went into doing CPR. People, my sister called an ambulance. It was all extremely dramatic. He was um, rushed off into hospital. Uh, and fast forwarding a bit. The hospital didn't I thought it was maybe a stroke maybe a heart attack didn't really know what it was um, by the time he got to hospital in the ambulance he had recovered although I now know he hadn't but it seemed like he'd recovered um, sent him home uh, after a, a night in hospital just one of those things doctors couldn't really explain it maybe a collapse from working too hard or whatever um, the next couple of weeks uh were very odd looking back because we thought he was completely recovered. Then he, he went on to have several more seizures, um, which the doctors then thought was maybe epilepsy. Um, and at the same time, there was just 
things were starting to be a bit odd. He was speaking in a different way. He, he wasn't himself. But of course, at the time, um, and the, this part of my book, which is the very beginning of the book, really, is written in the, um, in the present tense. So hopefully you get an idea of, of what it was like, really, to be just so bewildered and confused. Um, and then he had a much more serious seizure um, and was taken back into hospital. Uh, and from that point, that everything ha happened really very quickly. Um, he, he was in intensive care. Um, for a week he went into a coma and at that point we really we really didn't know whether he would live or die and that had all happened really within within two weeks so we're sort of now in the middle of January um, yeah that was an absolutely awful time of course because we just we just didn't know what was going to happen um, he came round um, by then the doctors had thought diagnosed encephalitis um, and that was he went into hospital on the 16th of January. He didn't come home until the 29th of November. So he was then in hospital, at several hospitals, um, including rehabilitation, pretty much for the whole of that year, the whole of 2017. Um, I know encephalitis isn't always as dramatic as that, and there isn't always um, that trajectory, but um, yeah, that, that was basically what happened to us. And it was absolutely, confusing and bewildering and what I wanted to do um, with the book really was try and help anyone who is in a similar situation both with encephalitis but actually with any illness because any dramatic illness or an accident or anything like that can often I think almost everybody has that feeling straight away of this can't be happening what is happening this 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 must be a dream that this just doesn't happen to ordinary families like us that you just go from one minute to everything being completely ordinary. And then the next minute, your life has changed. I describe in the book as if we've all slipped into a parallel universe. And to be honest, that's exactly what it felt like. Um, and sometimes it still feels like that. Sometimes I think all of us in our family still kind of think, oh my gosh, like that time before dad, Alan, my husband got ill, it, it almost feels like you could go back there and wake up and go, oh, the last five years was all all a dream. It, it didn't happen. It does. It really does feel like our lives changed very dramatically. Yeah, and I guess you know there are going to be many more families now, um, having had this pandemic for the last eighteen months, um, who have had um, uh, similar experiences uh, to yours. Um, many more than there would have been, I guess, at the point that you started writing the book. Who knew that we were going to go into this, um, you know, further dreadful episode for so many families um, around the world? Um, it, was it in some ways, you, you talked about um, there being several weeks before there was this encephalitis diagnosis. Was it in some ways to get, was it a relief to get the encephalitis diagnosis after those kind of weeks of uncertainty? Yes, it was. It was. Um, and I think that's the other thing that I had no idea until we were in hospital that there was there were illnesses that you've never heard of that um, are rare or unusual. But nevertheless, people still do get them. And um, again, I think I think most people think that they've, they've, they'll have heard of most of the things. And surely if something's rare and unusual, then that's going to mean that ordinary families don't get it. So. Yeah, we, we'd never heard the word. I remember saying, encephalitis, like, what is that? Um, and as soon as they, when they said they knew what it was, yes, it was a relief. Um, I, 
they told us very early on that there were basically three different sorts. It could be viral, it could be bacterial, um, and it could be autoimmune. Um, and they said very early on that it, it, they would, they hoped it was caused by some sort of infection because that was a lot easier to treat than if it was an autoimmune illness, which as you know, and probably many of the listeners know is basically where your body is mistakenly attacking itself. And with, um, with the encephalitis, it was antibodies in, in your blood that shouldn't be there um, that are attacking your brain. And we really hope, we said, oh my goodness, I hope it's not autoimmune encephalitis because they made it very clear that that was far more complicated. And of course it turned out that it was autoimmune encephalitis. So it was, it was a relief to have it, to have it diagnosed. Um, but of course, you know, as soon as we, um, as soon as we discovered more about encephalitis, we thought, my goodness, that's that there's a lot to that. That's a very complex illness. And the, and the doctors were very um, clear about that, that it was it was complex. I also hadn't hadn't appreciated at all. I mean, it's a funny thing because in some ways, of course, you'd have to say we were really unlucky. Alan was very unlucky to get encephalitis because it is it isn't particularly common. Um, autoimmune encephalitis, perhaps even less so. But in other ways, we, I think once now I've come through it, I realise we were very lucky in the sense that the science of diagnosing encephalitis is still incredibly new and incredibly cutting edge. Um, and the test, the actual test to discover the antibodies that were in Alan's blood was only developed in 2010. So, you know, if he got ill not very much longer ago, then um, they wouldn't have even they wouldn't have even known what it was. And the doctors, to be honest, were very frank about that. They said, you know, just a decade ago, we'd have said, yes, one doctor said, yes, unexplained madness. That's what we'd have said. Just, you know, don't know what it is, but he seems to have gone mad. Um, so yeah, it, it is a help to know what something it is, is. And I can't tell you how um, astonished I was to discover how much science there is behind um, all the tests they can do and indeed the treatments they can do for encephalitis. As you say, I think in this last year with the pandemic, it's made ordinary people an awful lot more aware of just how absolutely breathtaking um, the science advances of, of medicine have been and how incredibly quickly um, things are progressing, which as I say, was entirely to our advantage really, because you know that, that was a huge benefit to our own. Yeah, I, well, I think you're right. I mean, having having specialised in encephalitis for you know over two decades now, I can tell you, you know, twenty years ago there was there was really no um, research into this condition. One say cyclovir had been discovered and used as a treatment for herpes simplex encephalitis. For many years after that, there was very very little research going on. So um, I think it's extremely heartening. I I agree with you. Um, how how much of more of a focus there is. Um, I was intrigued I remembered something when you were talking then about you know not having heard of encephalitis and um, I remember talking to one family and, and um, whose son had become ill and uh, when the doctor was talking to the parents he said well it could be one of three things it could be a brain tumor it could be meningitis or it could be encephalitis and the family um, said to me, they said, well, we'll take that one. We'll take the last one because they knew that meningitis and, and a brain tumour were really bad. And the doctor looked at them and he said, no, that's the last one that you want. Yes, uh, absolutely. Uh, no, great, that's right? very much that I can completely understand that because yeah. actually we 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 very much hoped it was. I mean, 
I hoped it was a brain tumour, which, as you, as you say, is extraordinary because obviously nobody wants um, to have a brain tumour. But I think at the beginning, once they'd ruled out, I mean, I, to start with, I thought it was a stroke, probably. When Alan collapsed, I thought it was a stroke because in some ways the symptoms were probably quite similar. And I know encephalitis often doesn't start with seizures or anything like that. Um, but actually the signs were there after that first seizure with Alan, the other signs of encephalitis that aren't like a stroke, the, for Alan, the confusion, the lack of knowing where he was, even though he was somewhere very familiar, all that sort of thing were there. But of course we, we had no idea to, to look for that, that that was, we thought it was just the medication after his first seizure that was making him a bit confused. And yeah, we, we hoped it was a brain tumor. We, cause we thought mistakenly, I think that, oh, if it's a brain tumor, they'll they'll cut it out and that'll be that it'll all be fine I mean I think I think the other thing we we absolutely didn't appreciate about encephalitis and probably many illnesses is that even though the doctors and the medical science can cure to a certain extent the encephalitis the damage that having encephalitis had done to Alan's brain was permanent so it wasn't you know it, and I think that's the case with a lot of illnesses and indeed actually COVID it's not it's not just the thing itself it's the damage it wreaks on your body while it's rampaging through it and that's the thing that the the families um, the person themselves of course and the families are going to have to live with for a very long time and I think that's that's definitely the thing um, that I didn't didn't know didn't really think about I suppose I sort of thought hospitals are, and doctors are in the business of curing you and then you you know you all carry on as normal and now you know I appreciate it's it's not really that simple yeah no um it's just brought to my mind I think it was there was a, a Duchenne muscular dystrophy uh campaign that was quite controversial and it, it was a poster campaign I think of a, a child and it simply said I wish my child had cancer because treating Duchenne muscular dystrophy, of course, is something that's quite elusive, whereas cancer, at least you've got a fighting chance of being able to treat. So, yeah, I completely get it. But look, you, you write um, in the book about how the balance of your life partnership changed uh, from really from that first night. And so talk to us a little bit about that and, and how you navigated that. Yes, uh that was difficult that was very difficult it's it's very difficult I think if you if you've you know been married to someone we've been married for 23 years um to completely adjust to from being a wife and a, a partner an equal partner to being a carer um and that is I would say something that I am still absolutely progressing through and I I very much felt with the book that I wanted to um be very honest about about that and, and exactly what that entailed um to start with when Alan came home from hospital after pretty much being in there a year he had occupational therapists you know working with him um to help him being at home and one of the things they'd quite often say is oh we're, we're here to help get Alan back we're going to get get your husband back for you kind of thing and I mean to be honest I found that incredibly annoying because that wasn't that wasn't possible that wasn't possible and I think I I can see why they say that and of course every recovery is different and um you know some people do absolutely of course make a, a full recovery from from encephalitis but 
you know, a lot of people don't. And I think that's the case with, again, with any illness. And um, another thing that was intensely annoying, and one, one of the things I've done in the book is there's a list, there are lists of things to say to people if, if, they've, if they, they're seriously ill, um, and there are things not to say to people if they're seriously ill. And one of the things is the whole, oh, I heard someone talking on the radio and they made a full recovery and it's amazing what drugs can do. And yes, my friends had that and they're perfectly OK now. So you think, well, that, that's not helpful because not everybody, that does not apply to everybody. And I think um, definitely the idea that we were somehow going to reach back and get the old Alan was just completely misleading. And um, there is absolutely, um, again, a conclusion really that I come to in the book that for us as a family I think it's it is much more important that we adjust and adapt to the new Alan rather than always searching for the old Alan because I, I just that that is just pointless and I think there's a again there's a whole chapter about recovery and rehabilitation and what what rehabilitation can do and what it can't do at the encephalitis website was extremely helpful with that um, because again a, a lot of people I think when you talk about someone who's been seriously ill they 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 think that rehabilitation and recovery you're getting back to where you were to start with before the person was ill and absolutely that is not what you're doing you are you are, I think um, you should be measuring from when the person was that they're most ill and progressing from that onwards and very much as a family we we like to feel that we're moving forwards, um, moving forwards, always moving forwards. But I think, um, yeah, try, trying to get back to where we were on Boxing Day 2016 is that's that's not going to happen. And I think it's not it's not helpful to think that. So, yeah, I think it was it was very hard to adjust. It was hard to adjust, and it is hard to adjust. But I think it I think it can be done. And I think I hope as a family that we we have done that we have we have adjusted we have moved forward i think those are really wise words actually catherine you know sometimes it, it, um i think certainly the support team at the encephalitis society and i you know um some families that we work with some parents that we work with they expend this inordinate amount of energy trying to get back the person um that was before and sometimes some people get stuck there and, and they almost end up spending the rest of their life. And I mean the rest of their life in this hamster wheel of trying to get back the, the child, the son, the daughter, whatever it is um, that they had before. And so I think it's wise words indeed. Um, you talked about this extraordinary length of time that Alan spent in the hospital, which I, I think totaled about 318 nights, which almost a year. Um, what did you do during those days? What was that like for you and your family? How did you spend them? Well, I think, I mean, there is, when I, I, I decided very early on that I would go into hospital every day and see Alan. I mean, obviously at the beginning, of course I was going to go in every day, you know, when he was extremely ill in the coma, we were in pretty much 24 seven. But once it became obvious, I remember the moment that a doctor said to me, this is going to take a long time to treat. Um, and I said, well, how long? And I know, and one of the things, again, I've learned in the book is doctors do not like guessing. They do not like hypothesizing about what might and might not happen, which again, as a, as a patient or as a 
family of the patient can be incredibly frustrating because you just want answers. So I said, well, come on, give me some idea. Are we talking days? Are we talking weeks? Are we talking months? Are we talking years? What, what are we talking here? And she said, months. It will be many, many months. And I was just aghast, really, because I, again, we were still kind of thinking, oh, you know, they'll sort this out and then I'll come home and, you know, it'll be fine in months, months, months along, aren't they? So I, once I knew that, I thought, okay, he is going to be in hospital for months um, and it is going to be, yes, it's going to be hard for the whole family. Both two, the, my two daughters were at university. So of course that, you know, they went back to university. Um, they came and visited as often as they could, but you know, they absolutely needed to get on with their lives. My son was at school, he was 13. Um, so he needed to, you know, get on with his life. Um, and I decided I was going to come in every morning and almost treat it like a job, really, I suppose. Come in, hear what the doctors had to say, um, and just, yeah, just kind of keep always looking for the next bit of day and the next bit of progress. But it, even though I knew it was going to be months, I didn't, I didn't, uh, I suppose I didn't expect it to be quite so many months. If I, there's quite a lot in the book where I say, if if I'd known, if I, if I'd known how long the whole thing was going to be, it's probably just as well I didn't know because it would have absolutely knocked me back, you know, and I just thought, well, let's just keep taking each day at a time. Um, there's one section at the beginning where I've, I've said that there are basically lots of different ways of dealing with illness. And I think all of those ways are valid and there isn't, the, there isn't a right way of doing it. And I think often, you know, people will tell you oh, you should do this you should do that and I think you've you've absolutely got to find the right way for you and for me the right way was just to keep going keep doing it one day at a time do something um just yeah just move forward other people I know um want to as you say research everything about it look up look up you know what there is to do but I thought no I'm just going to I'm going to come into hospital I'm going to completely trust what the doctors say and I'm just going to keep keep going with it one day at a time um but yeah the hot the to start with I thought um I would just write a book about hospitals because that experience of pretty much spending every day of a year in hospital there was so much information and I realised really early on that, that although the doctors are telling you stuff about the medical, um, what's happening with Alan, absolutely nobody is telling you anything else um, and just how hospitals work, what all the medical words mean, all the different bits of jargon, um, what all the different doctors do, why are they all wearing different coloured uniforms um what all the scans are doing what all the tests are going I mean I mean almost every day somebody a doctor would use a word just a word like an MRI scan or a CT scan or they'd say this is acute or they'd say you know all these medical words and uh, most people I don't think have got a clue what any of them actually mean you know they'd say oh he's going to have a colonoscopy or he's going to have a gastro this or a you know so again I thought my goodness me there is I think there is a need for just something that explains um, the basic mechanics of how hospitals work and what all these words mean and what the, you're sort of ex almost expected to know. And I completely understand that doctors are, you know, they're far too busy treating the patient the, to sit down with the family and explain, oh, this is how it's going to work. He's going to be in this room. He's going to be moved to that room. I mean, even I think the experience when most people go to A&E, 
they think, oh my goodness me, what is happening here? Who are all these different nurses? What, do, what does triage mean? Why am I why am I moving around? Why am I in this room? Why am I in that room? You know, so all of that, I thought, golly, you just want someone to kind of explain to you in ordinary plain English what the flip is going on with a hospital. Um, but then, yes, after the year in hospital, as I was, you know, I was thinking, okay, and then becoming a carer is also something that, you know, could do with a bit of explanation. So it went from being a, a book about hospitals. But yes, to start with, my my working sort of title was a hospital handbook, because I just thought that's the bit that that's the bit that you just, you know, it's bewildering, isn't it? If you go into hospitals, if you've if you've pretty much never been in a hospital before. Yeah, I, I think that's right. It is yours and Alan's story, but it is all, also, as you say, perfect words there, is this hospital handbook, um, you know, talking about these practical areas. I think you even talk about car parking tips, which uh, I'm sure <laughs> many people will find useful. Um, so it is much more than, than a memoir. It does, it does offer advice for people who find themselves in a similar situation. Was that then the catalyst for you know, why you decided to write the book? And, and actually, at what point did you decide to, to write the book, you know? I, quite late on, I suppose, in a sense, I was, I, from the very beginning, I was jotting down um, things on my phone, um, because I, I'm a writer, you know, I'd, I hadn't, I hadn't written a book before, but I'd written website copy and, you know, copywriting, that sort of thing. So, um, I suppose writing is relatively a relatively sort of natural way. And for me, I found it very helpful to sort of process what was going on by just writing down what was going on, um, which actually I would say, again, everybody is different, but I think that most people would find that helpful. I think if you, you know, it, it doesn't, it's not necessarily, I wasn't writing to be published at all to start with. I was writing to help me, understand um what what was going on um and the other thing i was doing was we again i think anyone who has got someone who becomes ill one of the first things that's going to hit them is that they are going to have to relay a lot of information to other people in the family or to friends of the person or whatever and that in itself is absolutely exhausting um because it's not it's never just well it's unusual if it's just you there's usually going to be all sorts of other people that you'll need that will be interested and will say oh what's happening with Alan um can you tell me what happened today what did the doctor say how ill is he da, 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 da. so we I we set up a family whatsapp group um just for just for the really close family so it was my friend uh, my children um Alan has got two older children so my two stepchildren um and also Alan's sister so there was quite a group of us and actually every day after I'd seen the doctors and found out a little bit more um, I summarized it on this family whatsapp group to tell them and it was it was a huge advantage actually and again I would I would absolutely recommend doing something like that um, if you are the the primary carer or the wife of somebody who becomes ill because otherwise you, you can come home from you know when I came home from hospital in the evening sometimes having spent all day there you are absolutely exhausted and really to be honest the last thing you want to do is spend hours and hours on the phone talking to people um so actually the writing it down on a whatsapp group was very helpful to me i did it on the tube as i was coming back from the hospital and it kind of meant i'd sort of processed it all in my head i'd written it down and and everybody knew so it was kind of done so i think the 
yeah, the documenting process, I think, is helpful. I think it would be helpful for anybody. Um, and as I said, very early on, I thought, is, is there something out there? Is there a book out there? Because I'm from a publishing background, I was like, oh my gosh, is there a book out there that's going to help? And I've, there are absolutely books about encephalitis. Um, and there are lots of books about other serious illnesses, but there didn't seem to be anything that was just a sort of general, what to do when someone gets ill. Um, I mean, I think to start with, I almost thought of it as a sort of survival a survival book. Um, my publishers eventually thought the word survival was a bit bleak. So they were like, no, let's not put survival in the title. That, that sounds a bit, bit too much black humour. But it was like that. I was kind of thinking, golly, you just want something just to help you keep your head above water here. Um, so yeah, I was, I was writing it down partly to process it myself, partly to tell the rest of the family. And increasingly over that first year, I was thinking, wow, when this is kind of all over, I think that, you know, there might be a market for this because I think I almost every single day, I would say, I found out something that I thought that's helpful, that's useful, that would be helpful for someone else in my situation. Sometimes it was a really tiny thing and sometimes it was an absolutely huge thing, like, like goodness me, why has nobody told me this? Um, but yeah, I, 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 and I suppose it was probably a year after Alan came home, by which time, you know, he was living at home, I was his carer. And I, yeah, started to formulate it a bit more in my head and think, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to approach a publisher here and see if they, if this is something they'd be interested in. If there was um, one thing that you hoped people would take away from the book, what would it be? I think, I think one thing that I found out that I, um, is that, is the value, I suppose, of connecting with other people and talking to other people and, I mean, sharing experiences. I mean, I, I actually think before all, before Alan got ill, I think I was much more of, I, I was a much more private person um, and much less likely to talk to other people, to, um, to ask for help, I suppose, in any sort of context, really. I mean, I was quite sort of self-sufficient. I think we were quite a self-sufficient sort of family. Um, and I think I, I don't know why, but I think I realized fairly early on that actually that illness is a very, can be a very, very lonely thing um, for the person, of course, that's experiencing it, but actually, I think carers can find their lives very lonely. Um, and I think that is something that you can remedy by, by sharing and talking to other people. And almost as soon as, soon as I went into hospital, I was chatting to the other people on the ward, you know, and finding out things from them. And actually I realized that that, that made me, that helped me. Um, it helped me enormously, actually, just to share experiences, talk to people, say, oh, what are you here in here for? I mean, Alan, my husband, he he used to be far, far, far more chatty than me. I would say I was the more reserved person. He was the person that could talk to absolutely everybody. And I suppose very, you know, almost instantly the roles was reversed and that he was to start with. Yes. So well, he couldn't he couldn't talk. So I kind of had to had to talk, I suppose. And it and yeah, connecting, connecting with other people has made a massive massive difference I think to the whole experience and right the way through you know once um we got through it connecting with like the encephalitis society and there's a brilliant society um called Headway 
who um charity who deals with people who've had brain injuries um we've you know been along to some of their meetings and again you just realize my goodness the people that are going through illness on their own is absolutely horrendous i mean alan he would he would say he knows he was he was lucky that he had me he was lucky that he had his family because i think you know go, go, going through something by yourself is awful um and in so so much harder so i think the one thing i would say is that yes make as many connections as possible make as many connections as possible talk to people um join join charities talk to societies talk to other people just yeah connect i think is is, is the mo one of the most useful things i think i've learned over over the experience Connect, and that's why Connect is the name of our newsletter, of course, because <laughs> you're absolutely right. Um, so what advice would the Catherine of today give to the Catherine who was beginning this journey five years ago? Um, that's quite tricky because it is quite difficult to to look back and kind of almost remember um i do feel you know we're we're all we're all different i think i think the 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 thing that's probably helped me um and luckily i suppose i i, I was this person the, the book is ultimately positive and i would say i'm i'm a positive person i've always been quite a positive person i think i learned that from my mum who is the sort of person who's very you know, glass half full. She was always, always very upbeat, even if it was pouring with rain, she'd, she'd be the sort of person that would say, no, it's going to brighten up in a minute, we'll be able to have our picnic. So I think that kind of optimism um, is massively helpful. And I, I always was an optimistic person. And I think that stood me in extremely good stead um, through this experience. And I, I do think, and there's actually an entire chapter really in the book about almost how to train yourself to be optimistic um because of course not everybody is and i think when you are bombarded with um bad news which many illnesses can do you know day after day you're discovering okay we can't do this we can't do that it isn't it isn't it isn't going to be good news um it can be hard to be optimistic and i think i would i would definitely say that you I'm not talking about pretending ever that everything is always fine, because I think that is is not right. And I don't think that's necessarily helpful. But I think you can um, you can be resilient and you can you can think how you will deal with things realistically, but with a positive angle to that realism. So um, and I think that's especially important, perhaps when you're you're talking to children about illness, um, which again, there's there's a lot in the book about how to talk to children, how how small children deal with illness, how teenagers deal with Ill illness. And again, what I've learned along the way about that. And I think you, you have got to be realistic, but I do feel that being positive, even if you, even if you can't be positive about the illness, you can be positive about how you'll deal with it. Mm. I suppose that's what I'm saying. And I think, that's that's one of the things that I think has helped me. It's like you you absolutely cannot think just because you believe that everything will be all right, it will be all right. Because if there is one thing that that 
awful experience of the encephalitis taught me it's that actually there isn't always a happy ending there is not always a happy ending with illness and absolutely Alan you know the hospital did a wonderful job job but you know he has been left with permanent brain damage and that was that is not no amount of optimism can can put a spin on that um but you can be optimistic about how you are going to deal with illness you even if you're not optimistic about the illness itself so I think um if I was yeah if I was looking back on myself I would I would and I would say to anyone in this that situation try and be positive about how you are going to deal with it because you can deal with this I truly do believe that everybody has the capability to deal with deal with serious illness however bad and how serious it is you can do this um you you can't will yourself well I absolutely don't believe that but you can you are in control of your own emotions and you can you can influence those and importantly I think you absolutely can influence how the other people around you um see illness as well and, and deal with it it comes back to that age-old adage doesn't it of you can't change what happens to you but you can change the way that you respond um to things absolutely absolutely I think that is that is absolutely valid and I think that's that's something that's extremely important to bear in mind with illness because I think as I think you, you said earlier sometimes people get very stuck with an illness as serious as encephalitis thinking I want it to be different I want a different outcome and sometimes people with any serious illness do an awful lot of research themselves and think oh my goodness maybe the doctors have got it wrong maybe we can find out something ourselves maybe we can go abroad and, and we'll get a different answer and of course that's absolutely your right to deal with it if that's how you want to deal with it but I think sometimes that absolutely is the fact you cannot make a difference to the illness itself you can't unfortunately medical science can't do everything but you absolutely can make a difference to how you deal with it yeah absolutely well I think the um I think sometimes um the media in our tv influences uh, people's behaviors as well I think people watch casualty in Holby City and various other things and and you know everybody wakes up from the coma and goes straight to the toilet or has a cup of tea or something of course it isn't like that and 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 there's always a diagnosis and and all of these things and of course actually real medicine isn't like that often there's not a diagnosis and often we don't know as you said if this had have happened to Alan 10 years ago they would have simply said to you well he's gone mad we don't know why but he has um and and I think that's an important point to get across. You talked about there um, about how to talk to children, about how to talk to other people about these things. And one of the things that has struck me really is that I think there's probably a role for this book um, for health professionals as well in understanding what it's like for patients um, and carers and family members um, when they talk to them about the health of their loved one. Is there any advice that you would give to a doctor, a nurse or a consultant if they were listening to this in terms of how to um, approach um, patients and families? Yes, absolutely. No, I think you're right. And I think the publishers, um, Jessica Kingsley, my publisher, absolutely very much, they, they do, do a lot of books that deal directly with health professionals and the kind of educational um, side of, of publishing. And um, I think that very much so that doctors 
don't always necessarily realise how what the patient experience is like. Um, I mean, Alan's neurologist and um, and your own president, actually, Tom Solomon, has have both read the book, and 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 Alan's neurologist especially said that that. I mean, they were very complimentary about it, which is obviously really nice. But they um, they both said that it it taught them a lot. I mean, Alan's neurologist said, my goodness, reading that makes me extremely proud of what we're doing. Um, but she said it also makes me realise what we could do better because there are there are moments I am very honest in the book about times when doctors say something and you just think I have no idea. You know, you, you don't seem to have any idea of how how that's coming across to us as a family. I mean, I think one, one of the things that I found most frustrating perhaps was that all the way through when Alan was in hospital, um, doctors were continually saying, and he saw so many doctors, that's the other thing I think that you don't realise in a hospital, that you almost certainly will not just see one doctor. I think everybody thinks they'll have a doctor, it'll be someone they really like, and they'll be their sort of trusted person forever and ever. And it isn't like that in hospitals. Um, certainly the hospital Alan was in, you, you know, every single day it was a different doctor. They were on a, on a rotor. Sometimes we saw the same one, but it was usually months later and you'd think, oh my goodness me, I've, here you are again. I, you know, um, and they always said, oh, this is very interesting. This encephalitis is extremely rare. We haven't, don't see many, um, Alan's cases is, is, this is very good. They often brought medical students in, but they never, ever, ever, told us anything about where all the information that they were finding out from Alan went I mean how was it useful and they they you know and that I think it would have helped us as a family enormously to know that everything that was being found out from Alan was going to be helpful in the future with other patients with studies with research um and they just never said that. They they always said, oh, yes, goodness me, this, you know, wrote reams and reams of notes. And you just thought, well, where are all those notes going? What, 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 how, you know, what, what is all this information, these great big fat files, what's it being used for? And as soon as I'd said that in the book and Alan's neurologist um, read it, she said, oh, my goodness, yes. I get it. I, I can tell you absolutely. There's this study and there's that study and there's this case in America and there's a, and all of this information that we found out is being used. And I yes, I can see that for a, for a patient, that's a, re, a really positive thing to know, isn't it? That your things that they're finding out are being used to help other people. But I think doctors sometimes, well, I I, do, I, I don't think we ever once had a doctor tell us firsthand something about the research aspect of the illness or something that they were using it was always just very much I get that they absolutely can't share confidential information about other para, other patients but I think that that can be very frustrating that that you are you feel you're being dealt with a little bit on a conveyor belt of patients and you're not allowed to see anything behind the scenes about what's happening and I and I think that that would help patients a lot if they were allowed to feel that that their experience and was being you know was was useful to the whole to the whole system yeah yeah that the, the experience is contributing in some way absolutely yes. to the betterment of other people I know whenever we're involved in research 
um, the doctors and scientists and researchers that we're involved with are often surprised at how keen the encephalitis community are in participating and being part of this. And it's for the same reasons. It's to know that those that are going to follow in your footsteps and people surely are going to follow in Alan's footsteps and, and other encephalitis patients, unfortunately, that actually maybe their experience will will be, you know, just in some small way a bit better because of your the contribution of your experiences yes absolutely i think that's right i mean i think that's the the entire you know one of the reasons for writing the book was to give give the patient experience some validity i mean it's very much not a book about what it's like to have encephalitis because actually alan has never really been able to articulate that himself i know some encephalitis um um people who've had encephalitis can articulate that and have, have written other books and that's and I, I've been to some of your events and people have spoken about the experience and that's very moving and very interesting but my book was very much to show what the the families and carers of people with encephalitis were experiencing because I think yeah I think that that the patient experience and the carer experience I think often is not is not reflected in, in what you can see um, on the NHS website or you know, from the doctors themselves. They'll kind of give you the medical stats, but they won't tell you what is it actually like to be ill, to be in hospital, you know, to be a carer. That, that's a very different experience, I think. Yeah, that's a very important point. Well, look, um, how is Alan today um, after all of this that we've, that we've chatted through? What's the situation now? Well, he is, um, I mean, that's an interesting question because I think um, people often say, oh, is Alan getting better? Is Alan getting better? Um, and absolutely, he, he is getting better, but not in the way that they mean, really, I don't think, um, in that the encephalitis basically um, left him with permanent brain injury, um, just the way that a brain tumour or a stroke or anything like that might. So there are, there's, you know, bits of his brain that are damaged and those bits are no, not going to get better. Um, but the, as you know, there is a lot of um, debate about how well a brain recovers from an injury and exactly how well it can rewire itself. Um, and that, you know, we know that brains can't, you can't grow new brain cells, um, but uh, the analogy that doctors used, um, which I think is a good analogy, is if there's some of the synapses in the brain, it's like driving along a road. If that road becomes all dug up and potholed and bumpy so that the brain can't make the connections because the road is all bumpy, then a better plan might be to take a shortcut and go another way round. Um, and that's, I think, Alan can learn to do things in a different way. Um, the brain injury has left him with a, a lack of what I think psychologists call executive function, which basically means he can't make decisions. Um, he can't, um, he can't really look forward he, um, and hypothesize about things. He, he's living very much in a in a sort of here and now world. Um, and if he's going to learn something new, then it's going to take genuinely months, if not years of repetition for him to learn that because the, the, the biggest and the easiest thing to get your head around is that he has absolutely no short term memory. 
so anything that happens um literally and it's an, as exact as as i can be to the minute almost within about 15 minutes he will have forgotten it um which is almost like a kind of i mean this maybe sounds a bit macabre but it's almost like a party trick and that if he ever it goes back into hospital and occasionally they think oh let's just test that bit of it i just absolutely know they'll do the test where you know they tell him words or he writes down things or whatever and it's almost like you can go five four three two one and you've forgotten it and it's a complete blank slate which obviously means that learning anything is very hard because if you haven't got any short-term memory you can't hold things in your head long enough for them to learn to learn so to give a, an analogy if he was he, he would never know what day it was and if I spent the whole day saying it's Monday it's Monday it's Monday it's Monday it's Monday by the time he learned that it was Monday it will be Tuesday so there would be no point whereas something like learning um for example that every day um he needs he every day has a sort of schedule and he is gradually learning that every day he'll he'll wake up at nine o'clock i'll wake him up he knows where the shower is he can he can do things with endless repetition um and he absolutely if he was chatting to you now you probably wouldn't notice any difference because he can do here and now he can do small talk he can do oh you look nice how are you what what it's a nice sunny day all that sort of stuff so yeah he is he is getting better because he is learning to adapt to the fact that he has got a, a brain injury but the brain injury itself is not going to get better um but both he and i guess the rest of our family are are, are learning and adapting to to living with that yeah i think you're right i think a lot of it is about adapting to the situation that you find yourself in um um, can he remember things from long ago then? Can he remember you getting married or, you know, having your children, things like that? What's his long term memory like? Not great in that he no, he wouldn't he wouldn't be able to remember any specifics of us getting married. So, I mean, I guess, yeah, he's he remember that we were married, but that's but he wouldn't be able to remember what the day was like or, or what, where we where we got married or anything like he often thinks the children for example are a lot younger than they are so it's often as if his 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 not his sort of memory of of the time frame is is very very hazy so um in again that's one of the things you know in the book that i talk about is the difficulty of children becoming carers because my son sam certainly who was 13 when al was ill um very much um became you know a child carer and one of another thing I want to do is raise the awareness of that apparently carers UK reckon about one in every six children are providing some sort of care to a, a relation with um, a disability of some sort and I think that's again something that I just had absolutely no idea about but a, a more a, a special difficulty I would say in that respect with um, my my children looking after Al is that he he doesn't remember that that's the case so he still thinks he's he's in charge of them rather than them in charge of him if you sort of mean so if I'm going out for an evening and, and leaving Sam say um who's now 18 um to look after Al a Al still thinks Sam's about 12 and B will therefore say as I go out oh right so um what time does Sam need to go to bed and um what shall I cook for Sam's supper and I'll be like no Sam is cooking your supper and you'll be going to bed before Sam does kind of thing and yeah so in that sense he 
he he's very woolly about about sort of timings right well we're coming towards the end of this podcast but i've got a couple of important questions for you um first of all you know people that are watching this or listening this how can they get a copy of pulling through well they can get they can go on amazon for first of all um and the mighty amazon but if they don't want to go on amazon then they can also go on to water the waterstones website has got it as well or they can go into their local waterstones or any other bookshop and order it there um yes no waterstones i'm pleased to say are really supporting it so they sh- they'll definitely be able to get it online from waterstones and if they've got a local waterstones to them and then they go in um they should be able to find it there too but yeah absolutely it is on amazon so um yeah just type in pulling through or Catherine jessup onto amazon and it should come straight up <laughs> it's published it's published next week um so it's published on the 19th which yeah i think is pretty much a week today so week week tomorrow so yeah fantastic um well is there anything else that you'd like to mention um that i haven't asked you before we finish up the podcast today no i don't think so really i mean i just i i think that you know everybody that is um involved with the encephalitis society is doing an absolutely amazing job because i think as I said, it's 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 very lonely when you're ill and when you discover you've got an illness which many people haven't heard of. And I think that the charities, including the Encephalitis Society, but there are so many charities throughout the UK who are just absolutely vital um, to to patients' recovery and the families of patients. So I, I very much want to kind of almost give a, a shout out to all the charities you know carers uk there's a few, there's a, some local charities to us who you know have done respite care with alan headway have been fantastic for brain injuries and i just think you know i if there's one thing when people say oh, is there anything i can do i think supporting the charities who support the patients and the families is absolutely something you can do because I really do think the NHS is absolutely wonderful but I had not realised that without the network of charities that we're lucky enough to have um, in the UK I think so many people would just be massively struggling I mean I know we would be you know it's the medical science that 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 cured Alan as it were or that made him well but it's been the charities that have that have held us and supported us through so yeah i would say just absolutely you know su- support charities they are absolutely fantastic well thanks catherine i appreciate that i will try not to now get on my political soapbox <laughs> um, and tell the government why they should be uh, helping charities who've been profoundly affected um you know during the last 18 months when you know we've been in a position where you know we've not been able to hold a single fundraising event um, but anyway, I will not get on that political uh, soapbox, but thank <laughs> you for those kind words. Um, we're really, really grateful to you for taking the time to chat with us today, Catherine. I know that you're, um, I think, going to be at the Encephalitis Society My Brain, My Story event, which I think is um, in Aston uh, University uh, near Birmingham in October. Yes. Um, our society services um, continue Um, so if anybody who's watching this or listening to this needs any support or information then our teams remain at your service you can go to encephalitis.info for contact details or to indeed chat online with any of the team and um, 
Catherine's call to action, you know, if you can support our work um, at this very challenging time, then please visit encephalitis.info forward slash donate. Um, but it remains that we need all of you to continue to keep up that personal hygiene, washing your hands, staying safe, getting vaccinated, and of course, buying a copy now of Pulling Spins, please. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, everybody. Thank you.